Welcome, Doctor. What's going on? Don't you realize how dangerous it is to intercept a transmat beam? Oh, come, Doctor. Not with our techniques. We Time Lords transcended such simple mechanical devices when the universe was less than half its present size. Look, whatever I've done for you in the past, I've more than made up for. I will not tolerate this continual interference in my life. Continual? We pride ourselves we seldom interfere in the affairs of others. Except mine. You, Doctor, are a special case. You enjoy the freedom we allow you in return occasionally, not continually. We ask you to do something for us. I won't do it. Whatever it is, I refuse. Daleks. Daleks. Tell me more. We foresee a time when they will have destroyed all other life forms and become the dominant creature in the universe. That's possible. Tell on. We'd like you to return to Skaro at a point in time before the Daleks evolved. Do you mean avert their creation? Or affect their genetic development so that they evolve into less aggressive creatures. Hmm. That's feasible. Alternatively, if you learn enough about their very beginnings, you might discover some inherent weakness. All right. Just one more time. You'll do it? Yes. If you'll let me have the space-time coordinates, I'll set the TARDIS for Skaro. There's no need for that, Doctor. Hmm? You're here. This is Skaro. What? We thought it would save time if we assumed your agreement. What's this? A time ring. It will return you to the TARDIS when you've finished here. There's just one thing. What's that? Be careful not to lose it. That time ring is your lifeline. Good luck, Doctor. Just a moment. Don't just disappear! What about Sarah and Harry? Hello and welcome to Who Watches Who, a Doctor Who podcast with me, Matthew, and as always, I am joined with... Hello, it's Scott. Hello, Scott, and it is the beginning-ish of April, uh, which means we can continue our dive chronologically through Doctor Who, which is kind of what we're doing for this year, and uh, we are finally, finally on to Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor, uh, with probably one of his most highly regarded episodes if not one of the most highly regarded episodes of all time uh oh, yes, and this of course, is yeah. this is yeah this is only what the second time we've actually covered tom baker <laughs> yes yeah, so the only ever time we've covered tom baker was with the hand of fear and it's an episode we both loved so much <laughs> yeah yeah i adored it um i thought it was really <laughs> compelling seeing the inside of a nuclear facility in such detail uh really unmatched when it comes to any other show or documentary for that matter uh but this episode the genesis of the daleks first aired on the 8th of march 1975 which was a saturday and an upsetting 48 years and 28 days ago to the day i don't know why that's upsetting uh the u.s president was gerald ford and the uk prime minister was one harold wilson who was prime minister for a very long time twice uh we so discovered um Did we? Yeah, last night when we tried yeah we, we, last night when we tried to record this the first time uh don't worry about that but harold wilson he was prime minister twice which is interesting uh scott could you guess as to what is the number one movie at the box office this week in cinemas in the oh. mainly the united states 1975 oh, I- well, I remember this weekend really well. It was the yeah. Cowering Inferno. 
Yeah. Uh, did you see it in cinemas uh, by chance? Yeah. Or were you o- opening were you the weekend? The yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, the Towering Inferno <laughs> is, of course, a 1974 American disaster film directed by John Gillerman and produced by Irwin Allen, featuring an ensemble cast led by Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen, notable for being in every movie from the 1970s, he was an extremely large movie star. Uh, it was adapted by Sterling Siliphant's. Uh, it was adapted. Sorry, I can't read. It was adapted by Sterling Siliphant from the novels *The Tower* by Richard Martin Stern and *The Glass Inferno* by Thomas N. Scorcha and Frank M. Robinson. So this is a movie that is two books combined into one movie, which is not something I've ever heard about before or seen ever replicated again. Two different books adapted into the same movie. Like, these books must be exceedingly similar. Yeah, I can't think of any movie that has two books from two different writers, but I can't think of, like, a series of unfortunate events, which Mm -hmm. kind of combines three books into one. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, but, you know, those were all three books of the same series, yeah. whereas this, this, as far as I can tell, is two separate books. Uh, like, uh, in addition to McQueen and Newman, the cast includes such people as William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, Robert Wagner, Susan Flannery, Gregory Sierra, Dabney Coleman, and Jennifer Jones in her final role. Uh, ten points if you can catch the name that stood out to me in that list. Uh, the, <laughs> the Towering Inferno was released theatrically on December 16th, 1974, and the film received generally positive reviews from the critics and earned around $203.3 million, which is a staggering amount of money uh, in the 1970s, and it took it gave it the highest grossing film of 1974, uh, and it got nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and won three uh, Academy Awards for Best Song, Best Cinematography, and Best Editing. So maybe a movie to check out uh, at some point. Um... I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it, but it, it seems like it's it seems like it would be a, a fun old time. Uh, I mean, it know? is 50 years old, so I imagine it wouldn't hold up for us. I don't know. Some like some 1970s cinema is is still very very good. You know. Yeah, um, but depends on the movie. <laughs> it does depend on the movie, um, but how can a movie with O.J. Simpson be anything but amazing? <laughs> Uh, (laughs) he never did anything wrong did he no exactly he wrote a whole book about it uh, in 1817, the New York Stock Exchange on this day is founded, uh, which uh, everybody thought was super cool and has led to nothing but great stuff for everybody. Then in 1910, Baroness Raymond de Laroche of Paris becomes the first ever licensed female pilot, which is super cool. Then in 1996, directly inspired by these events, Fargo, uh, directed by uh, directed and written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, and Steve Buscemi, is released in the us i absolutely love that movie absolutely love fargo adore yeah, it's been a long time i need to go back into the fargo movie and also the tv show i've only seen one season of the tv show but i hear nothing but yeah, great was... things about the other seasons i missed out on yeah same i was i was watching the tv show very recently and i've, I've kind of dropped off at the minute just because there is so many other shows and so many other things to do and so many games to play and so many movies to watch and so much doctor who i have to watch for this goddamn podcast i just can't (laughs) seem to fit it in anywhere but yeah it's it's definitely a show i want to get around to at some point because i do love love the movie uh quite a lot and then in 2022 scottish first minister nicola sturgeon formally apologizes to the four thousand scots mostly of whom were women that were accused of witchcraft between 1563 and 1736 
which is something that I'm sure they're all really happy about and something they were all asking for. So I'm glad that that's happened and we can finally put this issue to bed. We've solved <laughs> the misogyny of the past and everything's yep. good. We can just move on. Yeah, no more misogyny. You know, the Me Too era happened and everything's fine now. <laughs> yep, there's no problems in the world. We fixed everything. Uh, and that that's everything that happened on this day, the 8th of March. Uh, but there was something something very particular that happened on the 8th of March, 1975, and that was the release of Genesis of the Daleks. So, Scott, why don't you take us into to how, how this came about? How did this episode end up getting released? I just don't yeah, know. Yeah, of course. Um, we're only covering this episode because basically Genesis was like the number one most popular story voted in Doctor Who magazine 1998. In 2009, it was third place behind Blink at number one, which we've already covered if you want to listen to that podcast. And Caves of Androsani at number two, which we're covering next month. So, no guess as to why I chose that episode for next month. No, uh, because you like third... the title. <laughs> it placed third place again in 2014. And The Guardian actually placed the story in the top ten in 2014 as well. And, yeah, is this an episode you've watched before? No, uh, this is not an episode I had ever seen before. It's an episode I knew about and a story that I knew about going into it, simply because, you know, I'm a Doctor Who fan that's been on the internet, and so I've seen other people <laughs> talk about it, I've seen everybody rave about it and talk about how good it is, uh, and it's come. it comes up in discussion all the time, especially uh, when that Kapali episode aired with uh, Kid Davros, which... I really like and you hate because you're a grumpy, yeah. grumpy, grumpy loser man. Um, we, we need to get into an episode at some point because it could go on as a debate, I think. I don't I'll, like I'll just, so much I'll about just, episode. I'll just convince you that it's great again, like I did with the Doctor <laughs> Who movie. Um, but yeah, it's not an episode I've seen uh, before doing this podcast, but it's, it's one I knew about and one that has got extremely high expectations to live up to. So I'm, I'm curious. I, I've only seen the first two episodes so far for the podcast, but I'm, I'm curious as to if it's going to live up to that throughout this month. I, I have a, a suspicion it might not, but again, maybe it will. Yeah, interesting. I I'm, I'm guess we'll find out why you have that sus- suspicion. Because um, I, I hate got... old things. <laughs> um, I first watched this episode when I bought the Davros DVD box set. It has every Davros episode and also the Davros audio dramas from Big Finish. I think there's like seven, eight, sorry, eight full cast audio dramas on this DVD set, which is Christ. amazing for your money. Like, it's the first DVD I ever bought for my own money as a child in 2008 and yeah i just fell in love with this episode i think it's the first classic who i owned on dvd as well so great box set uh differing quality between all the davros episodes but genesis of the (laughs) Daleks is a pop well we'll see about that we'll see if it is it is is six episodes so i i I don't know if there's if there's ever a case in classic who where i think six episodes is required (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we'll see um i'll say i'll just say it off the bat i think genesis of the daleks is one of the better six parters there's obviously filler but you don't feel the filler as much as enemy of the world where one episode is just in the kitchen yeah the entire episode <laughs> yeah. um so obviously the writer of genesis of the daleks was terry nation he started up as a stand-up comic in 1955. Around this time, comedians were becoming more popular due to the radio becoming more popular. 
Um, you know, lots of new comics were popping up around this time, which he wanted to get a part of. He said he thought it was really good and used to get laughs because the pubs he performed in. Um, he admits they probably only found him funny because they were very he, they were they were drunk. <laughs> Yeah, but to be fair, like, a drunk audience is, like, what you want as a comedian, isn't it? You know, it's like the the two-drink minimum. Like, that's the classic yeah. joke when it comes yeah, to doing stand-up. If, if you want to get on national radio as a comedian, I don't think, you know, national radio, you, most most of the people are listening to them in the cars. You don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. you don't want to, to work your material through drunk audiences. No, you know, but I mean, it depends on on how desperate you are to get on the radio. You know, you could probably make a semi-okay living just going pub yeah. to pub. But yeah, depends um, how, how how high you want to aim. <laughs> um, so he went on to many auditions around London to kickstart his career until one day somebody basically told him, the jokes are really good, it's just you who's not funny. And this snapped him out from wanting to do stand-up, which is brutal feedback, but... I guess it helped him further his career into sci-fi. Yeah, and it it you know it is brutal, but it's it's feedback that I think is you know it's got like a grain of truth to it because you can write the funniest joke in the world, but if you deliver it wrong, it's not funny. You know, it, yeah. it's all about it's all about how you present the joke and your personality behind it. Like, I think the person saying that you know your jokes are funny is. Uh, is being like you are a great writer you do writing really well you are not a good performer because you're not performing these jokes the correctly you know a good example of really funny people who write great jokes are and perform it really badly are mess you know about youtube channel <laughs> i don't know if you've ever heard of it but they perform their jokes really badly i didn't realize they were jokes i thought it was a very serious <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you've been laughing at it? I wasn't. You're not supposed to be laughed at. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that was a very serious moment where um, Sean eats poop. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, I, it's really it's a upsetting character study of a man who's lost everything and the mental breakdown and trauma that he pre- like goes through that leads him to scat. You know. <laughs> Um, I, I presume none of the audience knows what we're talking about. We're talking about Matthew's YouTube channel, Mess, which is actually really quite good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fantastic. YouTube.com slash Mess YouTube, I think, is where you find it. Um, there are going to our YouTube channel. It's in the channels page. Um, it's great. It's it's dumb. It's very dumb. I recommend watching it. <laughs> so eventually, someone introduced Terry Nation to Spike Milligan, who was a huge comic in the late fifties. And Terry Nation was immediately handed a check for five pounds to write for Spike, which is a lot of money in those days. I'm not sure how much money it would account to now, but that's impressive. I find out. <laughs> what was it? Five quid. But yeah, in 1958, let's say. Five, <clears throat> five, five, five whole pounds. Yep. Five whole pounds. Uh, do do do. Five pounds in 1958 is worth 149 pounds 46p today. Not bad for your first gig, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like it would go further than it would today as well, you know. Yeah. Um. So Terry Nation wound up finding a lot of consistent work around this time, but he said the idea of doing 30 minutes of comedy work for 13 weeks was like torture to him. So he decided to focus on drama instead. I imagine 
it would be torture to just come up with new material every fucking week to fill a half hour slot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Hang on, I've accidentally put the number one hundred onto my onto my screen. How do I... What does that mean? <laughs> uh, like um, on OBS, I've written uh-huh. the number one hundred, and it's just it's on my face right now. <laughs> Come on. Yes. How no, do you that wasn't. Out? I don't know. Yes, there we go. Got rid of it. Right. <laughs> nice. Um. So because he was associated with comedy for so long, he found it hard to be accepted for a drama until Thames Television, which was ITV, approached him in 1962 to adapt a Philip K. Dick story for one of our sci-fi anthology shows, and this became his first step into sci-fi. <clears throat> in 1963, this year should sound familiar to you, in 1963 he began to write for Tony Hancock, a huge comedian who had a Thursday night show, um, later that year, he was contacted by his agent about a children's TV show called Doctor Who. I don't know if you've Doctor ever heard what? of this. Do- Doctor what? <laughs> Inspector Space Time, I suppose. <laughs> um, Terry Nation was insulted by this because he didn't do things like that. He, he just thought children's TV shows were like low... The, the lowest his career could ever go was to write for children's TV. Mm-hmm. And he never wrote and for he, Doctor he... Who. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so he continued working for Tony Hancock, and the two, man, the, the two men got into a huge fight, um, basically because he was trying to push new material onto Tony Hancock, and Tony Hancock was like, no, I'll just do my old bits. <laughs> um, so... Tony, uh, so Terry Nation soon found himself out of a job, and with his tail between his legs, he returned to his agent and asked him to please say yes to the BBC. So this is how he got to Doctor Who, just after a huge fight with this comedian dude. <laughs> his first story was The Daleks, which of course became a massive success for both his show and for Terry Nation. And eventually, Walter Tuckwell, an entrepreneur in the toy business, was able to contact Terry Nation and helped him get 50% ownership of the Daleks, meaning that by Christmas 1964, Daleks merchandise was the number one toy for little kids. And it's also why the Peter Cushion movies existed, you know, they were able mm-hmm. to get the license to use the Daleks, which we covered last year, and we're covering yes. the second one next month, I'm looking forward to that. Dalek mania, as it was known. <laughs> yeah, um, just the idea of getting fifty percent ownership of the Daleks oh, is so kind of money. impressive. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Uh, however, sadly, Raymond Cusick, the designer of Daleks, didn't see a single penny from the merchandise, which Terry Nation kind of waves off by saying he was a salaried employee. I think he knew the nature of his work, which is depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that is that's pretty lame. You know, like ninety percent of what makes a Dalek a Dalek is the design. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like the one. It's like the one thing that you you see what the Dalek looks like, and you go, "Yes, that's the Dalek. That's the famous design of a Dalek." You know. Uh, yeah, and that... you, you never look at a toilet plunger the same way ever again, do you? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, his second story for season one was The Keys of Marinus, a story known for having a, diff- a different location every single week, which was a huge challenge for a show to try to keep changing locations. 
Um, you've seen this story, and it's it's a decent story. Mm-hmm. As far as classic Who can go. Haha, <laughs> burn. Burn Got on classic him. Who. And his third story was the Dalek Invasion of Earth, which we're doing the movie adaptation next month. And this saw the Daleks roaming around London really effectively. And an iconic shot of just the Daleks basically doing the Nazi salutes, which is very prominent in Genesis of the Daleks, the whole salute thing. I I don't know what you're talking about. uh, (laughs) It's an alien planet, but... What, what what is a metaphor? I don't I don't understand. <laughs> um, Dalek invasion of Earth was followed by the chase, an insane Dalek story about changes locations each week, like the Keys of Marinus. It's also a borderline parody of the Daleks. Basically, Frankenstein's monster and Dracula appear as robots at some point, and Frankenstein right. p- Frankenstein's monster picks up one of the Daleks and just throws it like a wrestler. <laughs> right. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have we guessed need, that if you get. <laughs> we need to cover the chase. It is weird as fuck. It's so big though. It's so many parts. It's like yeah, six parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he we'll then get round wrote. To it. Yeah, he then wrote Mission to the Unknown, which was a prequel episode to his twelve-part epic, which he wrote with Dennis Spooner, uh, the Daleks' master plan. Uh, but the two men only had a few times to get broad directions because. Yeah, the two men only met a few times to get broad directions for the story because Terry Nation was busy on his next show, The Baron. The Baron only lasted for one season of 30 episodes, which he wrote 17 of, which is... Jesus Christ. <laughs> writing 17 episodes in a year. He was also That's a the lot. Creator... That is a lot. Yeah, he was also the creator of the show, and he wrote 14 episodes of The Saint as well in the six days, six episodes of The Avengers, and a handful of episodes of a few other shows. Busy time for Terry Nation yeah. in the late 60s. Busy indeed. As early as 1965, Terry Nation attempted to sell the Daleks as a spin-off to America. He had connections because the Saint and the Baron both did well in that country. He wrote the pilot script and named it The Destroyers with a budget of £42,000, which was over 10 times the amount of a standard Doctor Who episode at the time. And I would love to fucking see this because it was shot on film and produced in... It would have been shot on film and produced in colour, which I think would have been incredible. <laughs> that would have been really cool. What year did he try to do this in? In in the mid-60s. Let's say 1965. How much was it? 42,000. I'm just I'm just curious about inflation now. Oh, he wanted a budget of one million forty thousand four hundred and seventy-one pounds ninety-nine p. Yeah, which which is still kind of low budget, but it's much more budget than Doctor Who ever got. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I would have yeah, loved sure. to just see that come to fruition. I think he did sell the Daleks to another TV show. Um, it's lost media now, but it's basically about oh. a man having nightmares and a Dalek walks into well. A Dalek rolls into his room, and it's no. lost media, but that exists. Uh, yeah, I, well, I mean, the best—I think the best ever uh, adaptation of the Daleks in a medium that isn't Doctor Who is the Lego Batman movie. So mm. they were also I, in I Looney it's... Tunes back in action, which was probably the first mm. time I ever saw a Dalek. Um, they basically go to like That's a sci-fi cool. base, and there's lots of sci-fi aliens, and just one of them is a yeah. Dalek. I'm sure they've also been in The Simpsons at some point. 
Probably. Yeah, actually, they definitely have been. <laughs> yeah. Um, David Whitaker would then become the main writer of the Dalek episodes in the Troughton episode, in the Troughton era, which we discussed on Enemy of the World, because he wrote that episode as well. Um, Terry Nation did not like his handling of the Daleks, because he thought Dennis was turning them into simple robots, and Terry thought they were way more complex than that. I think he has a fair argument. Um, the Daleks definitely feel like less Dalek-y than usual. And I feel like it's a problem with the modern era. They introduce the Daleks every year, and sometimes it's just... They sometimes just appear off as robots. It's really weird. I think I, th- I think it's, it's just a problem with the Daleks as a concept, though, because, like... The entire idea of the Daleks is they want to, they want to be these robots. You know, they don't want mm-hmm. to be what they perceive as a weaker being, which is like you know the Khaleds or whatever. You know, the human version of themselves. They've mutated themselves into these killing machines. They want to be machine. They want to be Dalek. They want to be superior. So, surely, if you want to show a Dalek being a, the best Dalek it can be, you want that thing to be robotic and have no emotions. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a hard it's a hard middle ground to try and play with. Yeah, and. Um- Terry Nation basically came off with the idea of Davros because he thought when the Daleks have to make long speeches and they just immediately become boring because obviously they are really one note. He watched no the Peter Cushing movie. He watched the, he watched the Peter <laughs> Cushing movie and went, oh my god, this is going on forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted, he with Davros he wanted a thing that was half man and half Dalek to basically speak for them and Davros just has so much emotion he could lead an entire episode on his own like you don't need the Doctor in Genesis of the Daleks is my argument hmm interesting uh, <coughs> I, I I haven't seen enough to to know if I agree or disagree with that needing the Doctor in the episode or not it would be interesting to have a villain centric episode with no sign of the Doctor anywhere that would be an interesting take for doctor who to to go down um yeah that was the entire premise of mission to unknown it was the daleks on their own and there was also like a band of survivors trying to uh kind of overtake the master uh, daleks plan like the doctor wasn't in that episode and it's got the daleks in it which is an interesting premise Hmm. i think it's also got the premise of a spin-off they're trying to work on the villain spin-off Oh, we'll see. I like, I do like the idea of of seeing more things in the Doctor Who universe where the Doctor just isn't there to save the day. Yeah, you know, uh, just flesh out that universe a bit more would be pretty cool. Uh, so going back a little bit, Terry Nation actually pulled the Daleks from the BBC in 1965. So it was like a five-year period where we just couldn't use the Daleks, so we instead relied on the Cybermen, which were basically in most Triton episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In the early 70s, Nation wrote a few feature films and a TV movie, as well as seven episodes of Persuaders and four episodes of Protectors. I don't know these shows. I can't speak on their quality. Uh, so Terry wound up actually back at the show in 1973 and wrote three Dalek stories in three years. He basically only came back because he was so unhappy with the decision that... The, Basically, BBC wrote a story year in 1972 where they wrote a Dalek story without the permission of Terry Nation. So he was just so upset with them. Hmm. Understandably, I guess. Uh, so Terry Nation wrote Planet of the Daleks, 
Death to the Daleks and then Genesis of the Daleks in 1975, which is obviously one we're covering today. Um, so uh, after this, Nation also wrote the Android Invasion in 1975, the same year as Genesis. He would then return to the show four years later to write Destiny of the Daleks, which would become his last story because he was incredibly angry with Douglas Adams for rewriting most of his script. <laughs> so Douglas oh, Adams basically claims that Terry Nation didn't even deliver a script. It was just several pages of story notes and rehashed previous Dalek stories. Uh, the director of Destiny of the Daleks says that Adams had to write 98% of his script. So <laughs> basically, Interesting. Terry Nation didn't do his job. And got angry when Douglas Adams had to do his job for him. I love I love what's definitely a large part ego that seems to be fueling Terry Nation at this moment. Oh know? god, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, ego fuels most of his career, I would say, because him wanting the Daleks for his own is basically saying, I can do the Daleks better than anyone else. Let me have yeah. it. Yeah, the Daleks are mine and mine alone. I'm the one that is the best at writing them. Um, so the same year as Genesis came out, he created a TV show called Survivors, which lasted three seasons. He wrote seven episodes of it. When Survivors ended, he immediately created Blake 7, which lasted five seasons, and he wrote 19 episodes. Which, Blake 7 keeps coming up, and it'll come up more it does. in the future. It, it keeps coming up. It's a show that I know nothing about, and one that we're <laughs> probably going to cover at some point in this podcast's yeah. future. It's, it's inevitable. <clears throat> I'd, I'd love to find a way to fit it in. Um, Nation mm. moved to America in 1980 and his career slowed down quite a bit. He kept on developing program ideas and worked for a lot of production studios, but nothing really came from this fruition. In 1985, he wrote a few episodes of MacGyver, which I only know as a joke in The Simpsons, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, that's basically how I know it as well. Um, in 1986, he wrote a TV movie... And in 1989, he wrote an episode of a short-lived show, A Fine Romance, which never actually got aired because the network cancelled the show. And that's his last credit, a TV show episode that never came out. Um, oh. Terry Nation died in 1997 at the age of 66. Oh, well, that's, that's pretty young. That's still pretty young. Yeah, and you know, the last... Almost 20 years of his career is basically trying to develop shows that never got made. Nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Though, to be fair, that's like my entire career so far. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so just quickly about Genesis of the Daleks. Um, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix were still responsible for uh, developing the scripts for his season. Uh, they were obviously attached to the Pertwee years, and this was kind of like a limbo between the two eras. And they had to. De they basically developed the scripts because the new production team was just still finding their feet at this time. I think the producer was actually twenty nine years old, so it was his first ever production oh, wow. job. So I bet you it was really great for him to come in and basically not have to do as much work as he could have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So Terry Nation's first uh, draft for Genesis of the Daleks was considered too similar to other Dalek stories. So Barry Letts sat back and said, how about exploring the genesis of the Daleks instead? And he used those exact words exactly, coming up with like <laughs> one of the best Doctor Who titles of all time, the genesis of the Daleks. 
so, sometimes your best work is just off the cuff, you know? Sometimes you, you do the best stuff when you're not thinking that hard about it and you're just spitballing. Yeah. Um, so Robert Holmes, who was the script editor of his time and also wrote the story we covered last month, uh, he hated the Daleks. Apparently Robert Holmes met Terry Nation at the party and sa- uh, Terry said, I think the Daleks should be in every season. And Bob said, Oh, do you really? And Robert wanted nothing to do with that idea and decided that Daleks would never appear in another story while he was script editor. <laughs> so he Christ. I I I understand the hatred of the Daleks, especially for appearing every year, which I think yeah. kind of carried on to the modern era when Robert uh, Ru- sorry Russell T Davis tried to get the rights for a Dalek and Dalek. I like we we've seen the Daleks every season since. So I think we have, but it's, it's kind of like. It's kind of like tradition, you know? I think my I've seen the Daleks, I kind of like it. It's like a Christmas special. You know, I like it when they happen. The issue I always have whenever the Daleks show up is everybody forgets what a Dalek is. And they yeah, get, but you, like, they always yeah. progressively built on top of it. So, like, the first time when the Daleks show up in Modern Who, it's Dalek. And it's just one Dalek. It's super fucking atmospheric and cool. And then by the time they're, like, the third or the fourth time, it's an entire army of Daleks, and they're taking over everything, and there's millions of them, and they're just not as scary anymore, you know? Yeah. That's, that's my problem for Daleks. They're just overused, and every time they get defeated, and it's like, well, they're obviously not a threat. They shot a Prime Minister live on television... And they just also get forgotten about it. Okay. <laughs> um, so Barry Letts persuaded Robert Holmes in the end. And he basically said, this new script is really good. It's really exciting for me to explore the origins of the Daleks. Um, so, you know, Robert Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe, who was a producer, really got on board of the idea. Uh, Holmes wound up loving the plot strands dealing with the genetics and the morals of scientific development. Uh, the original story was to be called Dalek's Genesis of Terror. It was very similar to the original story, but with a handful of key differences, which we'll get to when we get to those episodes specifically. And that's the making of Genesis of the Daleks. Do you want to dive in? Yeah, why don't we? Let's dive in to Genesis of the Daleks. Episode one. My friend and I are not from your planet. Aliens? Humans. Um, Well, I am, anyway. I've heard Davros say there is no intelligent life on other planets. So either he is wrong or you are lying. We are not lying. And Davros is never wrong about anything. Really must be exceptional. Even I am occasionally wrong about some things. Who is this Davros? Our greatest scientist. He's in charge of all research at the bunker. There could be mutos, Nida. Intelligent mutos who've developed a technology. Tell me, um, what exactly are mutos? Mutos are the scarred relics of ourselves. Monsters created by the chemical weapons used in the first century of this war. They were banished into the wastelands where they live and scavenge like animals. In other words, genetically wounded. We must keep the Khaled race pure. Imperfects are rejected. Some of them survive out there. That's a very harsh policy. It's horrible. Your views are not important. The episode begins, as all episodes of Doctor Who in this era begin, with the theme song. Uh... (laughs) 
this theme song is very similar to other Doctor Who theme songs we've heard. The intro, however, is, I think, quite different to other Doctor Who intros we've seen. This one feels very much more like the inspiration to the modern Doctor Who intros we mm -hmm. get. You know, you see the Vortex, you see the TARDIS, you see the, like, Doctor Who logo through it. It feels much more like the modern ones took inspiration from this than, say, like, the John Pertwee ones, where it's just kind of psychedelic-y and you see his big scary face. I mean, this intro did start off with John Pertwee's final season, so... <laughs> mm. Well, you know, it's weird, yeah, it's we weird were that they were using Tom Baker in John Pertwee's final season. Oh, we were speaking off-camera because obviously this is the new Doctor Who logo, but it's in yes. this theme song as well. And wouldn't it be great if one of the 60th anniversary specials just opens up with the same theme song we've seen before in the Tom Baker era... And then David Tennant's face appears. That'd be so much fun. <laughs> I would love it. It would be. That would be a lot of fun for sure. I think. I think that would be, be pretty great. Um, I, 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 I would even, love I've for not... all. I would love for all three of the anniversary specials to open up on an old intro, like a different intro each week. That'd be so fun. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I've not even thought about. Like, I've been so focused on, like, what's the story going to be and stuff like that. I've not even considered other factors, like, what's the intro going to look like for these next set of specials. It's uh, just something else to get me more excited about it, I guess. But the episode opens properly on a bunch of gas-masked people uh, shooting each other with blanks and pretending to die in a quarry. It's a pretty dark way to open an episode. Oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah, it's so dark, in fact. Um Lots of people complained about it right from the bat, basically. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, can, they I basically can... die in slow motion because obviously it uh, makes the atmosphere more chilling, really. That's the only reason why it opens with uh, slow motion. And also, Terry Nation hated this intro because he claimed it made the show unsuitable for his children, but he still loved the overall episode. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty pretty violent way to open the episode. Uh, there's some very cool atmospheric mist everywhere, uh, which leads to a very nice transition where we see like a bunch of soldiers in the mist fade away and the Doctor come out through the mist. Uh, it's in obviously a different location. It's very nice, nice little transition as he's seeming very confused as to where he is until, of course, a Time Lord boops in front of him. This is not the first time we've seen this happen. This happened most recently with... Yeah. Um, what was what was the title of the goddamn Pertwee episode we covered? I'll, I'll God, let you the, remember it. Terror of the Autons? Terror yeah. of the Autons? <laughs> yeah. Yes, like in Terror of the Autons. However, this one's got much less blue screen and is therefore much less <laughs> funny. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's basically, it's a very well uh, written conversation, I think, between the Doctor and this Time Lord, uh, where the Time Lords are like, uh, we, we kind of want you to go and exterminate the Daleks before the Daleks are a thing, because we're worried that they're going to wipe out everyone in the universe. So we want you to kill them before they get the chance. To which the doctor agrees pretty pretty quickly he's like yeah sure i'll do that whatever i don't care about the daleks um yeah this, but it, you know this, it does this conversation was supposed to be inside like a garden just like a perfumed garden and instead of a wasteland and basically uh, david maloney thought it would be so much more appropriate if it's like on scarrow in the middle of like a war field that lasted a while ago and it mm -hmm. is so much atmospheric, it's so much better uh, framed. And also the Time Lord is modelled after a figure of death from the Seventh Seal. Yeah. You know the 
classic black and white movie with the iconic chess scene on the hill between like a yes. figure of death and the night. Yes, I'm super aware of that movie. <laughs> Are you shaking your head? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you if you just look up the seventh seal, one of the first images will be of a figure of death and the knight playing chess on a hill. And it is cool. it's very gothic, and it's so much. It's so appropriate for this era of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. This this conversation does lead to probably the biggest plot issue that this episode suffers from, which is time travel exists. And why wouldn't the Time Lords just time travel the Doctor back to a very early period on the planet, and he could just like go to the puddle that would eventually turn into Daleks and just take like a vacuum cleaner to it or something. You know, just suck up that puddle. Uh, and then, oh, the Daleks won't evolve on this planet anymore. Uh, and that would solve that problem immediately rather than giving him this moral dilemma where he has to be like, oh, God, do I let them live? Do I not let them live? They're at war with these people for so long. You know, uh, it's a much easier solution. I'll be a much less interesting episode. Yeah, <laughs> I think you have to, with a time travel show specifically, you have to ignore elements like that. You just have to be in the moment, I think. <laughs> It's it's one of the reasons why writing time travel is so difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but he, the Time Lord, informs the do- the Doctor that he's already on Scarrow, uh, and he just needs to kind of get this done now. Uh, and the Doctor's like, "Hey, but what about my companions, Sarah, Jane, and the other dude, Harry?" Yeah, Harry Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and either they were already on Scarrow with the Doctor or the Time Lord teleported them to Scarrow as well, and they appear from behind some rocks. And from there, we are thrust immediately into even more action as missiles start raining down on top of them, uh, and they quickly run for cover uh, before also, stumbling a por- Also, importantly, the Time Lord did give the Doctor like a little time rest yes. thing so that he could easily get back to the TARDIS. Which is floating around in space, by the way, so because that coordinates mm. aren't there. <laughs> yeah, what, what's um, interesting as well uh, is is the second he went, you must not lose this. I, I went, oh, he's losing that immediately. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it's a, it's uh, a good way of writing it out. So you know, like m- most episodes, you're thinking, why doesn't the Doctor just go back to the TARDIS? But in this yeah. episode, he can't because it's floating in space yes. somewhere. Yeah, which is pretty great. Um, he also, they stumble across the corpse of one of the soldiers that's been fighting and are very confused by it because it's got like an old-timey gas mask on but has like a modern or futuristic like jacket with a Geiger counter on it as well as like a musket and a laser. And it's like, yeah. what is why is this hodgepodge of, of equipment that they've got? This is so strange. Uh, we later, in a few scenes down the line, briefly find out that the reason this is happening is because, you know, the um, Khaleds and the other ones, I don't remember the name of the other species on Scarrow. Um, yes, the Thals. They, they've been at war for so long, they're basically running out of technology. They're using old yeah. technology now to fight alongside because they're just, like, not developing new weapons fast enough, which I yeah, think it's... is brutal like that's such a great idea yeah it's such a fascinating plot point it's from the hg wells 1933 novel the shape of things to come which followed the concept of a future war where technological resources ran dry and so the population had to go back to basics eventually and also the rulers mm-hmm. were planning their hopes on building a huge spaceship or rocket ship to colonize the stars 
And this was also the... Yeah, Terry Nation was just fascinated about the idea of uh, survival after a major disaster around this time. And he also developed survival, uh, Survivors, which was his next TV show. And he, he basically built the concept around that as well. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, they continue through the quarry and the Doctor spots that they are in a landmine. And so they have to be extremely careful walking through it. Then almost immediately, the doctor himself steps on a landmine. But it does lead to a very, very good scene of tension where Harry is trying to, you know, level out the landmine so it doesn't go off when the doctor releases the pressure on top of it. And it's it's a great bit of tension building that I think really sucks you in. As much as it is like just padding for the episode to continue, it does a good stuff in, you know, showing Scarrow is a dangerous place, showing that even the doctor is in danger here. You know, like he's not infallible to the dangers of Scarrow. He can himself find himself in life threatening situations almost immediately. Uh and other than that, it's just a really good bit of tension. Yeah, and it also shows a good uh, relationship between Harry and the Doctor because, you know, Harry helps save the Doctor's life and the Doctor's so thankful of it at the end. Where it's, it's just a lovely little moment where the Doctor's like, thank you so much, Harry. It's really lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they also get the feeling that they're being watched as this happens. And uh, we see as they walk away, somebody in like a giant ghillie suit or something. Don't worry too much about them. They'll come back later. Um <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Harry uh, Sullivan, you you know nothing about Harry Sullivan. This is the first time we've met Harry Sullivan yeah. on the show, isn't it? Uh, so I he think was created. So. so he was basically created by Robert Holmes because he heard the Fourth Doctor might be an older actor, so a younger, more athletic man was needed for the action, and they decided we basically didn't need Ian Martyr past the season because Tom Baker could handle the action himself. So it was written rather unceremoniously off of a show which is quite sad because i really like harry yeah the the interest i always find it interesting just how many companions were in classic who you know because like in modern who we've not really had that like that many companions we've had quite a lot but most of them have been pretty long-term one two season companions uh not looking at you david tennant um and you know when you look back at classic who i feel like there's a new companion that i've never heard of every time we watch an episode like (laughs) just so many of them uh but they eventually find their way to a dome uh, where they see a giant domed city and they make their way through some trenches uh and they're like oh god there's like dead people all over here they try to get inside one of the doors uh, that leads to like a bunker they're like ah we can't get in here let's try going on further down through the trenches when suddenly gunfire and smoke bombs and stuff all start coming out around them uh they drop down uh to for safety or they pretend to be dead or something uh and a bunch of people come running out the bunker and grab the doctor and harry uh leaving uh poor sarah jane alone in the trench because they just don't check where she's standing they check the doctor and harry they're like these guys are alive let's go back inside they don't turn the corner and be like oh there's another person alive right here yeah, uh, maybe they couldn't see her in her bright yellow trench coat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, she just blends this is, in. This is uh, now the Doctor and Harry separated from Sarah Jane, uh, as the episode continues. 
The episode continues as the Doctor and Harry are sent away on a transporter to go and see the commander dude to be like, oh, look at these people we've captured. We don't know who they are. We suspect that they're bad dudes, mutos, they keep saying, which feels like a horrible slur every time they say it. Which um, is, yeah, which is, I think, the yeah. entire point. It's it's perfect. Yeah. It's a perfect name for the mutants in this episode, mutos. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh they they get brought to this commander dude whose name i don't remember but i think is is he's very fun in this role uh and this is where like you know the metaphor starts becoming very obvious as to exactly who the daleks are supposed to be or the khaleds mm. in this episode you know just in case you weren't really getting it but they get um the doctor to turn out his pockets uh, which leads to a nice bit of levity, I think, when he just keeps pulling junk out of his pockets. Like, <laughs> you see the sonic screwdriver, a magnifying glass, the jelly babies. Like, it is, and he's like, ah, oh, this is this might go on for a while. As he's just constantly <laughs> unloading crap from his pockets, which I think is great. Do you think his pockets are also bigger on the inside? They have yeah, to be, right? Obvi- they have to be, yeah, they have to be. It's Time Lord fashion. Um... And also, one thing I like about all the Khaled soldiers are, they are so young, and it implies what all the older Khaleds basically died out in this war. And also yeah, it reminds me a... of the... They were, yeah, in the script, they're described as 15 or 16 years old, but I think they obviously cast people in their, like, mid-20s or early 30s or something, because they look much older than 15 or 16. They look they do, like they, the cast they, they of class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they definitely don't look 15 or 16, but it does have a great line from um, Tom Baker. It's either in this episode or the next episode where he's like, you know kid soldiers and inexperienced generals yeah you guys have got a great shot of winning this war uh which just made me think of a certain like invasion that's been going on in eastern europe recently mm. um I, I i don't know i don't i, I just i don't know where like you know that 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 connection would kind of come from but it's almost but as yeah. if forcing people into endless war is never great <laughs> but yeah with the scene of the doctor and harry being questioned it was originally done by two characters named Raven and Grainer. Uh, Grainer was supposed to be like an older general dude, but they decided it's best to just keep the younger man because the older dude was supposed to be like more questioning of like Davros's tactics and also the whole war. But to just focus on this dude who believes in Davros and just believes in the war is, I think it makes the scene much more bleaker, I would say. Yeah, it, having you know just a fanatic a, a pure like pure pure evil or, or like doesn't even consider himself evil but a pure pure like what we're doing is right like the Khaled race is the superior race he's just a hundred percent on board creates a much more disturbing character you know for the doctor to try and deal with like just a pure on fascist character especially um, when he's only supposed to be like 18 <laughs> yeah exactly um but he he basically says that they're at war with the Thals and they plan on exterminating uh, all of the Thals for the superiority of the Khaled race. The Doctor's like, Khaled? Huh, that's an anagram for Dalek. Uh, but then also he like whips the guy's hands, making him drop his gun and he then throws it to Harry. They, they take control of these guards, I think, very easily, you know? Very, very, very easily they, they take yeah. control. Which I guess um, just plays into the inexperience of them and the youngness yeah. of them. Uh, this whole uh, escape sequence was obviously padding. You can tell it's padding. It was written at like yeah. last moment because it was, wasn't was in the script originally. I, I think it's a fun little sequence. It's fine. 
yeah, the, the escape sequence is fun, but it does make our characters run around the entire base, get outside <laughs> just to get captured and brought back to the exact same room. Like, yeah. <laughs> but for, um, for some reason in this episode, I'm completely fine with it. If it was like any other episode, I'd have a big problem with it. I think it's because the everything surrounding it is so good. I'm more forgiving of the filler. Mm. Yeah. Um, Sarah Jane, meanwhile, wakes up uh, without Harry or the Doctor and goes for a wee wander through the wastelands as the Doctor and Harry uh, try escorting this guy out of the base before coming across uh, the general who is fantastic in this episode. He yeah. is such a, a like commanding yet kind of sniveling presence where he's like all uppity for like thinking he's superior than you, but he's got this annoying voice and he looks like an ass. Uh, it's yeah. just, it's just I, I, everything about his I, character is great. Yeah. I think the whole cast in this episode is fucking fantastic. You know, with, uh, Peter Miles as Nider, and also uh, the, uh, the other dude we were just talking about called Ravon, and also the guy, Michael Wisher as Davros. The whole cast is fantastic in this story. Um, so obviously, mm-hmm. Peter Miles is playing My- Nider. He's got an iron cross on his chest, which I wonder what's yeah, that. In case, you were, missing the me- in case you, yeah. just <laughs> you were missing the metaphor. Right. It was removed after two episodes because the production team were like, I think this is too much. I think it's too on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, but sometimes on the nose is still not enough. If you've ever, yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, I haven't known. Famous. But... Oh, it's amazing movie. Absolutely amazing movie. Famous for a lot of people not getting the metaphor uh, when it first came out, <clears> which <throat> is almost unbelievable because it, it, it so <laughs> hits you in the face with the metaphor of these people being fascists and being Nazis, like, by the end of, uh, like, the film, they're just straight up in, like, basically Nazi uniforms. Like, you know... Bro, bro, bro. The same thing is happening with the TV show The Boys today. Like, I just saw somebody on Twitter the other day basically saying, well, at least The Boys isn't woke, when the whole thing is a satire (laughs) on fascism and... Like, like I think is Homelander a Nazi as well? I was like, there's Nazis in the show, literal Nazis, and people They're, don't yeah. see the satire. <laughs> yeah, uh, God, some people are so stupid. I, I, I think it's really it's just media literacy, like not being yes. able to, like, understand what a metaphor is or what storytelling is. You know, and you're just taking things at a surface level. But, but the, you know, the thing you with the boys do? is the boys is so on the nose. That's like my complaint about the boys. Sometimes it's a bit too <laughs> much, but yet somehow people don't see it at the same time. Yeah, it's really yeah. strange. Yeah, people are dumb. What are you gonna do? Uh, but this the episode continues into as we said a very long chase sequence with the Doctor and Harry trying to escape this general and his men. Uh, they end up running through the whole base, getting out running through and there's some great shots here there's some really nice ones in the quarry where it's like a really really wide like high up shot looking down on the doctor and harry running mm. which i think is is very cool uh but you of skipped course, over you you skipped over the best part of the base i think um there's a point where the doctor tries to stop harry from running forward and he reaches out and touches harry's crotch oh, yeah. by mistake yeah i forgot 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 he touches <laughs> his dick yeah 
But yeah, there is some fantastic shots in the quarry. And also when Sarah Jane is running away from a mute, well, a couple of mutos, there's a great shot where a muto is like high up on a cliff and you see Sarah Jane down on the ground, like 10 feet below. And like Sarah Jane's like a, such a small image on the screen. And this muto is like an imposing figure on the camera and you just see mm-hmm. his feet and it's just so intimidating and it's such they, they get some really good atmosphere out of these quarry shots shots and also all the smoke going around it looks yes. great yeah they they really use the uh the smoke and the mist to their advantage in this episode for sure uh but the doctor and harry get captured and taken back uh to the base uh into the same room they were just in with the but now with the general talking to them instead uh where the doctor and harry are like oh we're not from this planet we're aliens um and the general's like that's impossible i i heard davros say that there is no life outside of uh scarrow and what i really like it's a really subtle thing uh and uh his performance is when he's saying this uh he starts like blinking really fast at a certain point where he's like uh, davros said different where it's like you know this just isn't computing with him this this he's he's like oh you're presenting me with information that goes against everything i believe in i don't know like how i'm supposed to process this it's a very subtle little bit of acting yeah and it's also it's also like he's it's being programmed into him that davros is always right and it's like he's he's he hears it every single day and it's sort of like a mantra and he just repeats it to the doctor as if it's like completely memorized like he's just Mm -hmm. like completely brainwashed by da- uh, Davros's tactics here. It's it's yeah, his performance is so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, it is very very good. Yeah, so the doctor and that get um basically told they're going to be tortured and interrogated uh and taken away because, you know, there's some stuff they want to learn about them. If these few people claim to be aliens and don't claim to be mutos as they so suspect, they're going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, meanwhile, we cut to Sarah Jane running through the woods, oh, no, there's a, hunted sorry, down. Sorry to cut you off. There's a great bit at the end of a sequence where, um, sorry, I have the names right here on my, in front of me. I keep having to scroll up. Uh, Nider turns to Raven and is basically like, okay, I have this list of requirements. You have to send these equipment to my bunker. And Raven's mm-hmm. like, but, but that's basically half my equipment. I can't fight this war with only half the equipment. And uh, Nider is like, these requirements come from Davros exactly. You, t- you can't, you can't unfollow them. You have to follow them exactly. And it's such yeah. a great little bit of like, if Raven is beginning to break away from his conditioning here. He's 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 fighting the system basically. Yeah, he's he's realizing that maybe this war is a bit unwinnable if they keep taking away his weapons. You know. Yeah. Uh, but we cut to Sarah Jane running through the woods, getting chased by some mutos, uh, and she stumbles across, uh, like, old rubbled castle or something. Like, it's a, it's an old, torn-down-looking building, inside of which is Davros himself looking... I, I would not believe if you, there, that there's an actor inside that costume. You oh, know, God, it, exactly, it, yeah. <laughs> like, like it's... Yeah. This scene is the first time Liz Sladen actually saw Davros, and her reaction to Davros is Liz's reaction. Um, so some kids were visiting this set on this day because we had won a competition to have lunch with the cast, which sounds fucking amazing to have lunch that with great. Tom yeah. Baker and all that. Uh, they saw Davros and basically presumed he was like a prop because he was sitting very still. 
Uh, Tom Baker <laughs> told the kids to move closer, and Michael Wisher scared the shit out of them by moving. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But yeah, the costume is just on the wrong side of plasticky looking, where... Mm. I don't like it doesn't look like there's actually a person in there until he starts moving his arm his face is so fake looking there's so much prosthetic on it that doesn't look super great but still the Davros design is you know a extremely iconic one so I, I think I they did it. the best they could with this budget mm -hmm. they couldn't do any better yeah. I think it looks it looks a lot better than Davros looks like in his next appearance that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he is running a test on a dalek uh god what daleks in this episode i never saw it coming uh where he's using voice commands uh and gets them to exterminate some targets and it's you know he's like oh now we can finally begin properly and it's it's such a cool way to end the episode i think with an introduction yeah. to this you know one of the big bads of doctor who history uh, alongside the Daleks, one of the other big bads in Doctor Who history, with Sarah Jane discovering them by herself while yeah. she's getting hunted. Like, she's in so much danger right now, and it, it's such a great way to end the episode where you're like, oh, God, what's going to happen, you know? And Michael Wisher's performance is immediately intimidating. You feel the presence of Michael Wisher in this costume. He's so good. Um, mm -hmm. However, after episode one aired... In the Radio Times, a woman wrote to the Radio Times saying the episode was brutal, violent, and revolting, and without point or plot. Which, mm. yeah, a lot of complaints came out of this episode because it's too scary. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, I, I, I couldn't watch this episode. I was too busy hiding underneath <laughs> my blankets. You're um, hiding behind a sofa. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I was. I was terrified by it. No, I, it was. I really liked this episode. I I thought it was a really. <clears throat> great way of introducing this story and it, it does it feels different than most other doctor who stories yeah. it feels darker it feels more like oh god this is this is a really mature story for doctor who to suddenly be tackling you know it doesn't feel it, i can get the complaints because it doesn't quite feel like a kid's show right now does it it feels like no. a mature sci-fi spooky time for adults uh dealing yeah. with big moral implications yeah, this is what Philip Hinchcliffe wanted his era of his show to be like. He wanted it to be more adult and scare kids, basically, so that older viewers would be more interested in watching the show, like older mm. kids and adults, you know. And I think, yeah, this episode is fucking fantastic. And when people complained about the violence and all that, Philip Hinchcliffe basically replied by saying, most children know the difference between fact and fiction. It's up to a parent to decide what's su what's suitable for their child. He also says that violence is never what a young ch child could copy, and that Genesis mm. will be seen to adopt a clearly moral attitude towards senseless warfare. And of course, also Mary Whitehouse, the infamous Mary Whitehouse, who was on a big crusade against violence and sex and movies and television like she's the whole just a reason... cool person just a cool person <laughs> like she's the whole reason the evil dead became banned in the uk for years because she, she <laughs> just led a crusade and it worked so much like doc doctor who basically had to get tamer after these three years after philip hinchcliffe left the show uh she basically <laughs> called this story tea time brutality for tots <laughs> That just makes me want to watch it. That just sounds awesome. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Like... If I was 14-year-old <laughs> and I saw 
I heard people complaining about this being too violent. I would fucking watch a shit out of Doctor Who. Yeah, God, I would not get along with this lady if I was to meet her in real life. I feel like I would have a, <laughs> uh, a, a staunch disagreement with her. Like, <laughs> uh, Do you want to jump into part two of Genesis of a Dalek? Yes, let us conclude this episode by diving in to part two of Genesis of the Daleks. Sorry if they hurt you. I lacked the courage to interfere. Well, you did save me from becoming the very first victim of a Dalek. Thank you. Yes, now you used that word earlier. It had never been heard before. And yet only an hour ago, Davros announced that henceforth his Mark III travel machine would be referred to as a Dalek. Now, how could you have known that? Well, I have an advantage in terms of time. You see, we've come here at this time because of future concern about the development of the Dalek. I think you're concerned too, aren't you? Yes, I am concerned. And there are a few others who think the same as I. But we're powerless. Then let us help you. You see, we believe that Davros has changed the direction of our research into something which is immoral, evil. You see, the elite was formed to produce weapons that would end this war. We soon saw that this was futile and changed the direction of our research into, into the survival of our race. But our chemical weapons had already started to produce genetic mutations. And the mutations were banished up into the wastelands. Yes. The mutos. Mm-hmm. Now, Davros, he believed that there was no way to reverse this trend, and so he started experiments to establish our final mutational form. He took living cells, treated them with chemicals, and produced the ultimate creature. Come with me. Episode 2 picks up right where episode 1 ended with Sarah Jane spying on Davros like the voyeur that she is. Uh, The scene doesn't continue for too much longer with uh, Sarah Jane hiding from the Daleks and eventually being captured by some mutos, which is pretty Uh, gross. Well, we do see the mutos in full appearance and they just look like normal dudes, (laughs) really. (laughs) Basically, they're just... Yeah, their skin kind of looks reddish, like they're kind of like dry skin or whatever. They kind of like have boils, but it's basically the only difference to normal but like, human. But, but it's like it's it's like their hands, like their heads or their faces are pretty normal, you know. And they're yeah. just wearing big, like they're wearing like fur coats, which <laughs> is yeah. It's yeah. I feel like so they t- kind of cheaped out when it comes to the mutants. Yeah. So Terry Nation wanted to make the mutants. Sorry, Muto's true appearance hidden by wrappings, so we must never know what they look like. I feel like if they just kept that motif, just keeping them wrappings, you know, that's still cheap enough just to wrap up their faces. Because I think now we just look, you know, it allows your it allows your imagination to do the work. Yeah, where you're like, oh god, I imagine how disfigured and horrible they must look underneath all that wrappings. Whereas when you just see them as like regular dudes, you're like, oh, okay, I don't understand why these people are discriminated against like yeah uh but the episode then continues with the doctor and harry being handed off uh to some new uh security people these ones in charge of interrogation and 
there's a bit of back and forth about having a cup of tea for a while, which is some <laughs> ha-ha-ha uh, comedy, uh, which then leads to the Doctor and Harry getting scanned by a big machine uh, and for the Doctor to lose his time wrist thing, whatever that device was called. You know, yeah. the thing that's like, this This will let you escape back to the TARDIS. Don't lose it. Ha-ha-ha. Um, doesn't doesn't um, Captain Jack wind up like a time wrist thing? Isn't that also Time Lord technology or am I mistaken? I think you're confusing it with the time vor- the vortex manipulator. Yeah, isn't it the same thing? Was it uh, no? The vortex manipulator, I think, was developed by whatever agency Captain Jack works for to okay. travel back in time as like whatever his job was. Do we know uh, much th- about the time agency? No, we know almost nothing about the time agency. <laughs> I presume that they I presume that they worked with Flux in some way. You know, oh, wherever God. the what what was what was the agency that the doctor worked with in Flux? What were they called? In, in, that the, the doctor's mum is in charge of? The division. I, I assume they're a division of the division. Um or something. Christ. You could retcon it into that. So it could be Timeler technology. I don't remember if they ever said it was but uh, it's slightly different because this is specifically just to teleport you into the TARDIS, yeah. whereas the Vortex Manipulator gets you anywhere, you know? Uh, but they then are said that they're going to be te- sent off to a senior science man, and uh, that's where their interrogation is basically going to continue. We then cut to uh, Sarah Jane with the Mutos, uh, where we see that they're just regular dudes. They start fighting over whether or not they should kill Sarah Jane, and there's a line where it's like, why must we always destroy beauty? Why kill another creature? And I'm like, this, that dialogue's that dialogue's really on the nose. That doesn't oh, sound gosh. natural at all. Like... Yeah, there's one scene, or it's one part of a scene where Sarah Jane's unconscious and we're just staring at her, basically saying, Rubbing her oh, chin, she's so like... beautiful. <laughs> it's really yeah. creepy. It is really creepy. Uh, but the mutos are then interrupted as some uh, Thal soldiers appear and chase them away. But they capture Sarah Jane and another muto. Uh, and they've got a line where Sarah Jane, they're like, ah, Sarah Jane, she almost looks like a norm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious <laughs> as to what part of her makes that dude think that she is a muto. You know, like, why, why is he so rude? <laughs> what I do love about the introduction of the files, it shows that they're, they can be just as brutal as the Khalids, you know, by shooting mm. in a, basically innocent mutos who are just have to live her life cursed in this wasteland like yeah the the files are also with bad people here there's no black or white which is really nice yeah it's just shades of gray shades of awful horrible gray uh, 50 shades of gray is... some might say wow <laughs> episode certainly does take a turn when the whips come out uh <laughs> <laughs> We then cut to back to the Doctor and Harry as they are with a science man. Uh, a science man that you said was once in a Superman. Yes, he is in the very first Superman. Basically, the opening scene, he's one of the Kryptonian scientists. Mm, which I is like where he's I a man with a face. He, he's got a face where casting agents went, you're a scientist. You look you look like a scientist. Uh, he does. You know, it's, he does. He does come yeah. across as a convincing scientist. Yeah, I guess he's fine. He's like an old white dude. You know, uh, pretty pretty easy to to cast in any role, really. If you if you want to put him into any job, because because white guys kind of have the advantage in every no they don't in. no um, they don't. Uh, you're what right. Are you talking about you're right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. 
<laughs> but he starts going through the doctor's things and is like, oh, but how can you be alien? Davros says this to us, etc., etc. Uh, and then he's about to start, like, the doctor's like, you know, he's like, tell me, tell me the story, doctor. Uh, and he's about to start writing down what the doctor's saying to him when he gets so interrupted um, by a uh, alarm being like, all oh, the scientists, Davros is coming, Davros is coming, look out, get in your positions, woohoo. Um, and Whoa. then we see, yeah, that, that's how it goes. That's that's a line by line um, recreation right there. Uh, Davros comes in to show off his fancy new Dalek, um, and this scene I think is pretty pretty great. Uh, where you know he's commanding the Dalek with his voice, and they equip it with a weapon, and the Dalek immediately goes to kill the Doctor and Harry, identifying them as you know non Khaleds. Um, and, you know, it gets stopped by Superman scientist as he's like, no, please don't kill them. We kind of want to run some more tests on them. And it, it's a bit of, um, I think, a way of showing that, that this scientist isn't as yeah. absorbed with Davros's mantra as the other people. And perhaps him meeting the doctor is what's opened his eyes to that, where he's like, wait, hang on. Davros is wrong about there being aliens. How could Davros yeah. be wrong? And then the second what? Davros is about to wipe out evidence of him being wrong, he's like, hang on, you know, let's let's not do that just yet, you know? Like, like he feels like one of those scientists who just want to, like, explore the stars or whatever, but because of his conditioning, because he's brought up on Skyrim in whatever year this is, um, he, he, he's kind of, like, oppressed. Like, basically, it reminds me of Donald Trump trying to get rid of the climate scientists. <laughs> like, they can't... <laughs> They can't figure out. They can't um, study the climate because Donald Trump removes all funding. Like, it reminds me of that kind of. <laughs> if you just close your eyes and pretend uh -huh. it's not there, something doesn't. It doesn't exist. <laughs> That's that is a law of science. So, uh, but I'd love to talk a bit more about Davros. Of course, he is designed by John Friedlander. Who also created the look for most major Doctor Who monsters between the late 60s and late 70s. He created the Zygons, Sea Devils, Davros, Oregons, and Sontarans. He also mm -hmm. worked on Blake 7, surprisingly. <laughs> oh. Um, so he didn't use foam latex for Davros. It just happened to fit almost perfectly to Michael Wisher's face. Um, the foam latex would be too expensive for them to use. Um, it mm -hmm. The mask, however, didn't fit David Goderson, who replaced him in the next story, Destiny of the Dalek. So the mask looks horrendous in the next episode. Here it really looks nice. I think it looks great on his head. <laughs> yeah, uh, the mask, I think, looks really good. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it looks fake. He looks like yeah. a doll. He looks like a toy man. He doesn't look like an actual man, uh, which to me kind of takes me out of it a bit. But like, you know, issues with the times what you're going to do like yeah. this is the first real costume of davros there's not too much you can do about that uh but what i really like is the way that when they brought back davros in modern times you know i feel like the 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 costume and the outfit was very much inspired by this version of davros and it's like yeah. a perfect update version into the modern oh, yeah. look for what davros should be uh and as silly as every episode is when davros comes back uh I, I love him. I love him when he comes back. Um, specifically, yeah. I, I prefer the I prefer the Capaldi episodes with Davros more than the, like the David Tennant episodes with Davros, but still very fun. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more about Michael Wisher. He had several appearances as other characters in Classic Who. We just saw him last month in Terror of the Autons. 
Um, after Terror of the Autons basically went on to do Dalek voices, he basically auditioned over the phone because Barry Letts was like, hey, can you do a good Dalek voice? So he basically started yelling exterminate down the phone to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the set of Genesis of the Daleks, during the rehearsals, Michael Wisher used a plastic bag over his head with holes cut out for the um, eyes and mouth, obviously. Um, to basically just get an idea of the claustrophobia of wearing Davros's mask in rehearsal and also the fact that when you're Davros you can't really communicate your acting by using facial expressions so he had mm-hmm. to figure out a way of doing it entirely by voice was it the episode um, with Peter Davidson that we watched that had Davros in it and he was yes. absolutely absolutely incredible with just pure but- shouting energy yeah, that was Terry Malloy. Um, sadly, mm. Michael Wisher never returned as Davros on screen. Uh, Michael Wisher also wore a kilt underneath um, because no. it was more comfortable for him to, to basically wheel himself around, which <laughs> is kind of funny. Davros is wearing a kilt the entire time. Do you think yeah. Davros <laughs> is Scottish? <laughs> <laughs> it must be. That must be why uh, Capaldi could fit inside the Davros machine so easily. <laughs> You know. um, so um, one time one time during an interview, Michael Wisher said, I was waiting for him to get to my, to my scene and people were so used to seeing me in a chair of sorts and being unable to see my face, but I'm sure they forgot there was an actor in there. Consequently, as time clicked away, that scene, we never got to my scene and I sat lonely and forgotten. It wasn't until the studio lights went out completely that I suddenly realised they had forgotten me. So I wheeled myself about in the dark with my one arm, and they gave up, and and I gave up and called for help. Somewhat sheepishly, I finally got rescued, and everyone was so terribly apologetic. I think that shows just how wrapped up in the show and people who worked on it got. They just accepted Davros rather than thinking there was a man in the mask and the costume. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which sounds like a nightmare. That sounds terrifying. Because I imagine <laughs> the visibility inside that costume is little to none. You know, yeah, because <laughs> uh, your eyes are completely covered by latex. So yeah, like, that sounds so like it w- was ter- terrifying. Like, yeah, but also on the commentary, um, Tom Baker says it was a prank. So I'm not sure if it was done on purpose or mm. what. <laughs> but it's yeah. a funny story either way. So yeah, as we yeah. said, um, um, he based his Davros performance on Bertrand Russell, the philosopher and ma- mathematician who had advocated the use of the atom bomb to win World War Two, and you know it's a perfect way to base your performance on Davros on just another mm-hmm. maniacal evil genius <laughs> yeah Christ um, so, yeah. Oh, that just got me excited for watching Oppenheimer uh, when it comes out oh god yeah it's out in July isn't it yeah it's like the same day as Barbie oh nice <laughs> best, best double feature we, yeah we might have to actually go in and see Barbie together by the way <laughs> I don't like seeing you in person. Okay, mean. Um, so Michael Wisher <laughs> never made a return as Davros on the screen because he was busy in Australia when Destiny of the Daleks happened in 1979. And the production on Resurrection of the Daleks, which we've covered, it took ages to get started because of strikes, so he couldn't sit around for much longer and accepted other work instead. Um, Terry Malloy became John Nathan Turner's Davros, so he was never asked back, really. He did, however, mm. return as Davros in 1993 for the trial of Davros, which was an amateur stage production for charity, which he also co-wrote. Mm. And, yeah, it was really strange. 
a lot of stage productions of Doctor Who happened in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, you know, when the TV show goes off the air and people are just kind of like doing their own thing to try and keep Doctor Who alive, you know, because they don't have access to that TV show anymore. So they're making these yeah. fan films, they're doing these stage plays, they're doing Dimensions in Time, uh, you know, all the classics. Um, so after Doctor Who, he acted in Terence Dix's Alice in Wonderland adaptation, and he also appeared in lots of real-time and BBV Doctor Who productions in movies like Wartime, and um, he was basically the ghost of Benton's father from the John Pertwee era. You remember Sergeant Benton we just saw last month? Yes, yes. And he was also in Shakedown, Return of the Sontarans in 1994, which I feel like we should cover someday. These weird direct-to-video movies are so fucking strange. We'll eventually run out of content where this we have to start covering <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, he also continued to appear at Doctor Who conventions until his death in 1995 at the age of 60. He sadly died, I think it was lung cancer, because he was a smoker. And Tom Baker mm. basically tells the tale of... Um, Terry, uh, sorry, Michael Wisher on set of Genesis, basically smoking underneath the mask and just seeing the smoke. Christ. Uh, sorry, the smoke rise up from the paper bag he was wearing during rehearsals. <laughs> God, God, the attitude to smoking back then was—it was certainly—it was a different world, wasn't it? You it know? definitely was. It's insane to think about. Yeah. Oh, the episode continues as we cut to Sarah Jane uh, with some of the Mutos uh, with uh, an extremely boring scene uh, where they're like, you know, we're with the Thals right now and they're going to basically make us work uh, to death until we get killed by radiation uh, by building this like big bomb or big rocket or whatever it is they want us to build for them mm -hmm. because we're uh, just expendable to them. And Sarah Jane's like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. Uh, and they get brought out to the big rocket where they slowly lift up some fuel cells and we watch a meter go from safe to toxic levels of radiation inside the room. Uh, you know, it's taking me about 30 seconds to explain all that. It takes a show about yeah. four minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, what I said with Sarah Jane in episodes we've covered where she has to be in some sort of like radiation zone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's uh, a, a weird theme. And it's always like she's in a radiation zone and it's the most boring part of the episode, <laughs> you know? It is. <laughs> uh, but we then cut to the doctor getting thrown back into his cell with Harry, where Harry's like, oh, what happened out there, doctor? Are you all right? And he's like, it's okay. I basically made up some science mumbo jumbo for them for a few hours. Uh, that'll keep them scratching their heads for a while. But I learned a lot from them. Like I learned that they're part of this huge like government block this huge think tank deep underground that's got more political power than most people realize and you know yeah. he's delivering what's, a what's, lot of exposition yeah what's important about what he says he says i've learned a lot more from them than they have learned from me which is a good line but on itvx the subtitles are so simplified that last part <laughs> which is kind of like crucial has been kind of cut off like the whole subtitle system on Britvok on ITVX is just so simplified. It's so annoying. Yeah, it's very the the subtitles very much are the gist. They're not they're yeah. not verbatim. They're very much like this is basically what he's saying. So if there's like a sentence that runs on a bit long, or uh, they just they just start skipping out words, or or in some cases completely changing the sentence so that it's shorter. Mm. Uh, it's it's very annoying for sure. Uh, but then lead scientist Superman man comes in 
Um, and he has a, a, a fairly interesting conversation with the doctor where he's like, I don't believe in Davros. I think he, what he's doing is insane. Uh, and I, I'm trying to help you. I'm sorry. I couldn't help you before, but I'm too much of a coward to like stand up properly by myself. Um, and you know, it's, I, I think it's an interesting character, uh, to have this scientist that's like defecting against Davros in the center of it and trying to stage a coup basically against him because he's found out again about these mutants um that davros is going to turn all the Khalids into uh mm-hmm. to fit them inside the dalek tanks uh and that's not something that he wants for his people to to have it's it's Gee, some nice fleshing out of the Khalids. So, i wonder why he's so against it, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing it's, yeah i know <laughs> like it seems like it would be such a fun thing to do uh but it's it's some nice three dimension what i like about this story is the you know the people involved are three-dimensional like not all the Khaleds yeah. are nazis that are like oh we love daleks dalek is all we ever want to be and not all the files are good people that are like oh we're just trying to fight against the evil Khaleds. like as you said before shades of gray you know like yeah. these are uh complicated people stuck in a war that you know most people don't want to be involved in but it's been going on for over a century you know yeah there's like four different groups of people the fowls the Khalids, the, com- the doctor and the companions and also the mutos and you know the mm-hmm. mutos are supposed to look horribly disfigured but some of them are secretly nice people or good dudes the Khalids yeah. are all supposed to be like nazis but some nazis are like yeah i don't i don't agree with what's I going don't on here. In we this. need to stop yeah. it uh, the fowls are supposedly the good guys and yet, some of them just want to They're shoot the... mutos. Yeah, and use <laughs> and, them to uh, shove them into radiation rooms. Yeah, and even the Doctor and the Companions kind of like a, have a whole moral compass here because it, it shows a lot more later on that, you know, the idea of them willingly carrying weapons throughout the story is something that the, the Doctor and the Companions don't often do, but it's like a moral compass mm-hmm. here. It's, it's not black and white, which I really appreciate about classic when classic who does this occasionally <laughs> yeah occasionally it'll do it um <laughs> there's a really great scene where they're getting shown the mutants as well where it's like just through the window into an observation room and we don't see the mutant we just hear snarling and like a monster growls as the entire room is like baked in green light which again you know kind of like what the idea they had of the mutants but didn't follow through with lets your imagination do the work you know, yeah, so yeah. you can imagine. I mean, you've already got an idea that the Daleks are like these weird squid people because we've seen them. I don't know if we've seen them in other episodes as squid people yet. Um, but you know, yeah, we get we the idea that they're this this monster. Yeah, so you can you can infer in yourself which saving on a prop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's such a it's it's such an effective use of the budget because it costs nothing to make a room with green light and yeah it's like more effective than showing an actual monster it's really great yeah use of the budget here Mm -hmm. uh we then cut to sarah jane and the mutants where they're like we should escape and the other guys are like yeah you're right let's escape up that scaffolding that's the whole scene uh um hang on uh, we get a, we get a nice little bit of symmetry uh, as well, actually, as we then cut to the doctor and Harry talking with the scientists, where they're like, "Can you help us escape?" You know, so we've got our two people in separate locations with separate problems, both doing the same thing, which is trying to escape. Which is, uh, you know, a nice bit of writing. Um, it's just it's a shame that I don't care about the Muto story at all. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, the Mutos are definitely the weakest set of characters in the story. I feel. 
like even if they were covered in wrappings, I feel like it would be more interesting. But here they just look like random dudes, and it's they don't feel like their own separate entity in the story. Yeah, uh, and we then get an extremely long escape sequence with them, uh, with Sarah Jane and the Mutos, where they like knock out a guard with a hilarious punch and then start climbing scaffolding until the episode ends. Uh, yeah. it, it's not an exciting way to end the episode. It, it kind of ends with Sarah Jane falling off and then freeze, and then the, the it's like a freeze frame ending where it's like, oh my god, what's going to happen to her? Um, a way weaker ending than last than episode oh God, one's definitely. ending and um, we also cut to the well before this we cut to the doctor and harry kind of like climbing through a sewer system and we yeah and we're kind of like at the grating and we see like a big dinosaur walk by or whatever that's decent enough um the whole thing with the sarah jane thing is that terry walsh the main stunt coordinator of a night of a 70s doctor who said that sarah's stunt double was absolutely awful um, it was a fall apart eight feet. She just stepped nimbly off. I oh. even got poor Liz Sladen to fall about ten feet already onto some boxes before that. So basically, the stunt double was not doing her job very well. <laughs> that's that's a shame. That sucks. Like, and also we were watching Liz Sladen actually climb the scaffolding of about ten yeah. feet as well. And also the bars. She is a small person, and the bars are like two far apart for her to really climb on to so she's doing mm. such a great job in the sequence yeah yeah it's a shame that it, the sequence kind of falls flat you know it, <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't quite have the impact i think that they were hoping for um, um i think this is that... like one of the first freezes on the cliffhanger as well which is really cheap i think it doesn't work mm-hmm. no it i think it's much more interesting where it's like dun 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 and then like a shock zoom in as a character's like oh <gasps> uh whereas the freeze the freeze frame just kind of feels like ah, and the episode's over now you know it it doesn't it feels way more disjointed and less planned out uh but that does take us to the end of this episode and to the end of this podcast scott so what are your what are your opinions on episode one and two of genesis of the (laughs) daleks episode one is almost a perfect episode to me um episode two is obviously weaker you know it's it's filler basically mm-hmm. but yet when you're watching the show on its own without having to analyze it for a podcast i i dug it you know i i watched mm-hmm. parts one and two together and i didn't have a problem with episode two it's obviously just yeah. people stand, sitting around in rooms having conversations establishing basically what's going on Yet I was still interested enough to say episode two is good. Episode one is a masterpiece almost, I would say. Mm-hmm. What about you? As a first time uh, I, as well. Yeah, I, I think episode one was fantastic. Probably, you know, up there with some of the best classic coup I've seen. You know, classic coup's got these great bits where it can out of nowhere pull like what some of the best acting and best writing you've ever seen in your life uh, in between some of the cheesiest episodes you've ever seen. Um, and I really, really, really dug episode one. I was super engrossed to the story. It flew by for me. I thought the pacing was amazing. Uh, and then episode two came and I went, oh boy, oh, this is slowing down. This is this is getting, I'm getting less interested. Because um, I watched both episodes back to back as well. I watched them with my breakfast like a few days ago. Um, and I remember I remember digging episode one and then episode two, I was like, oh God, this, this is not getting there for me. This is not reaching the same level. And, you know, I don't think episode two is a bad episode. I've, I've definitely seen much worse episodes of Classic Who. Um, you know, but I don't think, we, we... I, I wouldn't say it's... Yeah, carry on, sorry. 
uh, I, I wouldn't say it's spectacular. I wouldn't say it's a spectacular episode. You know, I think it's fine. I think it's a completely yeah. fine episode two that doesn't do much with the story, you know? Yeah, we've just covered three stories this year, which has much worse filler than episode two of Genesis of the Daleks. You know, with the time Meddler, the filler was Vikings raping a woman, which actually happened in Doctor Who. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> episode yeah. Uh, uh, Anime of the World episode 3 was about basically a woman cooking. <laughs> In the kitchen, yeah, and it was like a sitcom. Right? Yeah, and then last last month, I can't remember what the filler was exactly, it was just people standing around in rooms reiterating what happened last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, sometimes Doctor Who filler can be real bad. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is far from the worst filler we've experienced, yeah. but, you know, it's... I, I still... It doesn't need it. Does, you just you don't need to have it. You could skip episode two, I think, for the most part. You could maybe watch like I think there's maybe ten minutes of neat must watch stuff in episode two, mm. and then ten minutes of actual filler. You know, um, yeah. If I was to On... cut, if I was to cut all these episodes together, so far episode two is getting really chopped up. Yeah. On the series twelve Blu-ray, I think Genesis of the Daleks is like condensed into like a ninety-minute movie. So I think that's mm-hmm. a much better way of actually watching the story rather than the six parts together. Yeah, probably. Uh, but that does take us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week with Genesis of the Dalek part three and four. We will be covering them through all of April. Basically, it's going to take us to get through this story because it's just so big. Uh in the meantime, why not leave a review for our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podcast Addict or whatever apps you use to listen to podcasts. It really helps uh, these the show get promoted to other people and to help other people find our show if you think other people deserve to be listening instead of just you. Um, uh, you can also find this podcast you can find this podcast in video form if you prefer it as videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash who watches who where you can see me waving to the camera right now wow isn't that spectacular uh, you can find it on audio form wherever you listen to podcasts there's a lot of links in the description uh, you can find us on Facebook at who watches who on Twitter at watches doctor you can find me on Twitter at cloth 223 uh, I think we're a pretty good follow on Twitter we've been tweeting quite a lot recently Um you know, I, Twitter is a hellscape, but like Doctor Who Twitter can be pretty funny at times, and it's fun uh, to hang out in. Uh, uh, it can Doctor, also be Doctor horrible. Who it can Twitter also be is a bit hit and miss, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, Twitter in general is just a bit hit and miss. But you you can find us on those platforms there. Um, I think that's everything. You can send us an email at whowatcheswhopod at gmail.com, or you can just leave a comment on our YouTube channel. Uh, what else do I need to plug? I think that's all the all the back end yeah, plugging things it. that need to happen. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye.